Daniel chapter 1, let's get a little bit of a running head start. Verse 5, we read that the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies. So this group of, of Hebrew young men that Nebuchadnezzar had taken captive from Judah, taking them to Babylon, he appoints daily provisions of the king's delicacies and the wine which the king drank. He appointed three years of training for them so that at the end of time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To the chief of the eunuchs gave names to them. He gave the name Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Verse 8, But Daniel, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Last Sunday, we took some time to address a general assumption everyone seems to make as they approach Daniel's courageous stand in verse 8. The assumption being that Daniel purposed in his heart because he was a good and godly young man. The operational premise for many commentaries is that while growing up in Jerusalem, Daniel had been raised by godly parents who imparted to him his godly character. <laughs> that sounds nice. And let's be honest, it does lend itself to some wonderful application for parents. Seeking to raise godly kids will have the backbone to stand against the, the lure of Babylon and the king's delicacies. And yet, while it sounds nice, the problem with this assumption are numerous. Again, we noted this last Sunday, but the text doesn't give us any evidence to substantiate this assumption about Daniel's parents. In fact, unique of really all of the Old Testament heroes of the faith, we have zero zip zilch nada biographical information about Daniel. We don't have recorded any of his family lineage. None of this is provided for us. Aside from this, one point that's often overlooked is that Daniel grew up in Jerusalem during the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, and that's significant. The Bible is clear that for the 40 years, Jeremiah is speaking for the Lord. Not one single person converts. Here's the message and repents. If Daniel's parents are as godly as we assume, then the case can be made that they were far outside the norms of the day, definitely outliers. Obviously, I reject this assumption. And I do so in favor for a more likely position that Daniel was really your typical rebellious teenager living in Jerusalem when he's unexpectedly carried away into exile. Like all of these young men from Judah, Daniel finds himself in Babylon largely at the mercy of what was going on around him. And worse still, what was being done to him. They changed his speech and dress. They granted him access to the king's table. They immersed him in Babylonian thought and culture. They stripped him of his Hebrew name, replacing it with one that recognized the dominion of, well, pagan deities, the very sign in his flesh, circumcision, designed to remind him of his faith, had been cut off. Daniel's transformation, heading into verse 8, 
from being a child of God into a Babylonian servant of the king was close to completion. Daniel. Daniel knows that he's experiencing God's judgment. I mean, good grief. His name, Yahweh is judge, constantly serves as a reminder of this difficult reality. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah had been right all along. His warnings had come true. And the testimony of Leviticus 26 could not have been more forthcoming. Daniel's fully aware that he's in exile because God had used the Babylonians to enact His judgment over them. That said, Daniel also knew from the testimony of God's Word in this same Leviticus 26 passage that God had also promised to avail His grace to the exiles. Writing, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, confess their unfaithfulness, how they walk contrary to me, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, speaking of the exiles, God then promises that He would remember His covenant, the covenant He had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and would not cast them away. I don't believe verse 8 records the resolve of a godly kid raised by godly parents who takes a godly stand. Instead, verse 8 records Daniel's conversion. But Daniel purposed in his heart. I mean, this was a monumental moment in this young man's life. A moment I'm convinced he repents and returns to the covenantial relationship he had with his Lord. I mean, Daniel has no idea what's going to happen next. He hasn't read the rest of the chapter But he determines in his heart, purposes, to place his trust in God's Word, his faith in God's promises. And he acts with a fundamental belief that God's grace was still available and accessible even in exile. Look back at verse 8, because it's important you notice where Daniel decided to draw a line in this conversion moment. We read, Daniel purposed in his heart what? that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. It's interesting. Daniel didn't resist when they changed his name. He doesn't resist when they changed his attire or or force him to speak Chaldean. He doesn't object to the three years of Babylonian education, indoctrination, or even the plan that he'd spend his days serving in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knew that in order for him to prove useful for God's purposes, he would need to know how that foreign culture, how that society functioned. Daniel needed to know Babylonian law and language and customs and norms if he was to serve in Babylon. Instead of taking a stand on those things, Daniel opts to draw a line in the sand where? When it came to eating the king's delicacies and drinking the wine which the king drank. In the context of this purpose, purposing in, in his heart, of this being Daniel's moment of conversion, I believe that there are two reasons he decides to take a stand on this particular issue. And it deals with distinction and separation. First, let me address the idea of distinction. Look again at the text. Daniel justifies his refusal to partake of these things, the delicacies and the wine, claiming what? 
that if he engaged in those things, if he partook of those things, he would be defiling himself. Back in Leviticus 11, God goes on the record as to the animals the Hebrews were allowed to eat and the ones which were forbidden. God also added stipulations as to how kosher meat, those things permissible, were to be prepared. Animals that were clean still had to be killed ethically and the blood drained thoroughly. I think it's safe for us to assume that the vast majority of the king's delicacies didn't fit within these dietary guidelines. Even the animals that were likely okay to eat hadn't been prepared properly. And then when you add that most all of the meat had been butchered and sacrificed to one of the many Babylonian deities before ever reaching Nebuchadnezzar's table, for these Hebrew men, very little of the king's delicacies were edible without acting in direct defiance of God's word. While obeying God, the word of God, would have been a good enough justification for Daniel making this stand. I believe his reasoning goes much deeper. When God established these dietary guidelines in Leviticus 11, he does so within an interesting context. The context is that the Hebrews were to be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. This exhortation to be holy in the middle of distinguishing clean animals from the unclean it indicated that none of this, none of these commands, none of these instructions were really about doing anything in particular. It was more about the people of God being something distinct and different from the world around them. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. It's impossible to do holiness. You must be holy. Holiness. Holiness is something which naturally flows from that which is already holy, similar to godliness. Godliness is that which flows from the presence of God in your life. You see, in giving the Jews these dietary restrictions and guidelines, what God was doing is He was taking holiness, this idea, out of the abstract, giving them a tangible example. He made His people holy, sanctified, set apart, clean. And now he wanted them to live a life that demonstrated this. That demonstrated that they were distinctly different from the entire world so that they would never forget they weren't children of this world. They were his kids. Notice the underlying conviction in what we find in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. In the Hebrew, this verb, defile, implied polluting or staining, which is interesting. Like in order to defile a person or an item, something would have to be done intentionally to desecrate that person or item, their inherent sanctity or holiness. In a way, defilement was to commonize that which was not common. Think about the implications of this statement. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. First, Daniel is confirming his holiness. Like, by definition, you can't defile that which is already polluted. Like, in line with his conversion, this moment of clarity and conviction, 
We know that Daniel, in not wanting to defile himself, is viewing himself the appropriate way. He was holy, sanctified, set apart. He was a child of God, distinct. Secondly, Daniel affirms that the external things that had been done to him in order to make him Babylonian had no bearing on his internal sanctity. Like by verse 8, so much of what's been done to make Daniel Babylonian has taken place completely outside of his control, right? Daniel wasn't in Babylon to serve King Nebuchadnezzar as a manifestation of his own free will. He didn't petition to have his name changed. He hadn't requested to have his manhood removed. Like being a eunuch wasn't a life goal. Amazingly, in this moment, Daniel is affirming that none of the things that Babylon had done to him had any bearing whatsoever on who he really was internally. He was a child of God. You see, in the end, we learn that Daniel recognized the only one who could defile him wasn't Babylon. The only one who could make common that which God had made distinct and holy the only one that could affect a change inside of him was Daniel himself. Look again. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That's important. Daniel rightly understood that his obedience to God's word isn't what would make him holy. Instead, his obedience to God's word by not eating the delicacies, by not eating these things that were against uh, the, the dietary guidelines that God had established, his obedience, it demonstrated and affirmed his holiness, his identity. Like holiness is a state of being that manifests holy behaviors. You see, Daniel knew that eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine was not consistent it wasn't a consistent behavior with who God had called him to be. As such, to eat that which was prohibited would have made his life common, defiled, when it wasn't. Aside from maintaining a distinction with the world, the other reason for Daniel's request was to maintain a separation from the world. Remember, the entire reason King Nebuchadnezzar opened up his table for these men to eat his food and drink to begin with was why? He wanted to create, to foster a dependency on him for their new lifestyle. The king allotted. In ancient times, sharing a meal was a serious and rather mystical experience. Who you shared a meal with was done sparingly and with deliberate intention. Since you were what you ate, and therefore one with whom you ate, eating at King Nebuchadnezzar's table, it would have represented oneness, friendship, acceptance. It would have solidified communion with the king. Inherently, eating at the king's table was an invitation for fellowship and an offer to build relationship. You know, in much the same way that Jesus has invited you and I to come 
and to eat from a table, and in doing so establish fellowship and communion with Him, Satan has employed the same exact methodology. Satan has established a counterfeit communion, whereby he wants you and I to align ourselves not with God, but with this world. Consider, in the original fall of man, everything about that story was initiated when the serpent of old offered forbidden fruit to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, verse 6, we're told, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Like Satan's invitation for them to rebel against God, it included the offering of a meal of sorts. Eat with me. In the wilderness temptation, as part of Satan's attempt to entice Jesus into this unholy partnership. In Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus, he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards, <laughs> he was hungry, no doubt. But then the tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mount of God. Jesus, let's have a meal together. Jesus says, no, thank you. Like Daniel rightly realized that there was no way around the fact that he would serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, in turning down a seat at the king's table, Daniel was establishing clear boundaries, not only publicly, but most importantly, in his own heart. It's as though Daniel's thinking to himself, I have no choice but to live in Babylon. However, I can choose not to be of Babylon. I have no choice but to serve King Nebuchadnezzar, and I'll do so with the best of my ability, but I refuse to place myself into a dynamic where I am wholly dependent upon him. I reject oneness. There's no question. In making this request, of the chief of the eunuchs, not to eat the portion of the king's delicacies that had been allotted to him. Let's be real. Daniel's kind of putting himself out there. He's on a limb. Daniel's a captive. Don't, don't mistake it. He had no freedom to make such requests. In fact, rejecting the king's menu could be seen as rejecting the king himself. At a minimum, such a request would be viewed by the powers to be, at being uncooperative. Like in the end, Daniel making such a request is opening himself up to some very real repercussions. Before we continue, one of the things that makes Daniel stand here so inspiring is the context in which he makes it. Daniel is experiencing the judgment of God. His life has fallen to pieces. Daniel is in the midst of incredible personal anguish and suffering. He's been ripped from his home, ripped from his people, taken to a foreign land. You know, the sad thing is that such stands, like we see Daniel making in verse 8, you know, they typically come with conditions. Often they sound something like, God, if you do right by me, then I'll do right by you. 
conditional. You do this, and I'll do that. God, if you get me out of this spot, then I'll do, and then fill in the blank. We make all kinds of promises. And yet, when Daniel purposed in his heart, when he made this decision, when he took this stand, when he made the request, he had no assurances whatsoever that things were going to work out in his favor. But notice, he doesn't make requests of the Lord. God, if you do this, then I'll resist eating the king's delicacies. No, Daniel doesn't add conditions to his obedience. Instead, he takes a stand because he knew it was right. Even when he was uncertain how everything was going to play out. And that, that said, notice what immediately follows. Daniel 1 verse 9. Now God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. I love how the ESV translates this verse. And God gave Daniel grace. That's what this word favor means. Grace and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Let's continue our story and see how it all plays out. Verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. Ashpenaz had reason to fear Nebuchadnezzar. I fear the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? You would endanger my head before the king. It's, it's worth pointing out that Daniel didn't approach Ashpenaz making demands. Notice that. He wasn't making demands. He made a request. Nor did Daniel approach this man and with kind of like a, a self-righteous approach, all moralistic. You know, it's a shame that genuine moral stands on conviction, they end up getting overshadowed by self-righteousness and pride. While our text is clear that it was God who brought Daniel into this man's favor and goodwill, I'm sure his tact making a request it was appreciated and probably helped matters. Ultimately, though, Ashpenaz's reply to Daniel's request articulates a very real concern. Can't blame the man. If he acquiesced to what Daniel had proposed, and then he and his pals end up looking malnourished and gaunt. Since Ashpenaz was responsible for their care, he's worried that the king might be really upset, that his head would be on a chopping block. Well, verse 11, we're told, So Daniel <clears throat> said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. As you see fit, so deal with your servants. Now, for starters, <laughs> Don't miss what Ashpenaz does. He does something really shrewd. It's apparent the chief of the eunuchs decides to leave the ultimate decision as to what would happen concerning this particular matter to the steward that he had placed over Daniel and these guys. Again, it's shrewd. You see, if things went south, what Ashpenaz is doing is he's kind of creating a measure of plausible deniability. Someone to blame. The second thing I want to point out 
from these verses is how Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have now joined Daniel. Don't miss that. In verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart. But by the time he approaches Ashpenaz with his request, his three friends have joined him. It's sad that only four of all of the Hebrew captives taken to Babylon made such a stand. But I can't help but, but be inspired by the reality that Daniel's faith, it motivated his three amigos to join him. Genuine faith, it's not always popular, but it can be contagious. In the end, I love the fact that Daniel, Daniel will not let this innocent man take the fall over a stand he was making in his own conscience. And so to alleviate any and all concerns, Daniel proposes a test period. Give us 10 days of eating what we want, and then examine our appearance in contrast to those who are eating the king's delicacies. Seems reasonable. Again, Daniel, he's not forcing things. Daniel stands on his convictions, his purposes in his heart, but he trusts God with the results. Verse 14, so the steward consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. There are some who attempt to use this passage to argue the benefits of a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle, a diet. The problem with this is really twofold. First, in Genesis 9, God specifically commanded mankind to eat meat following the flood. That mandate, God kind of hones it in in Leviticus. If there was a fundamental problem eating meat, or even, let's say, a greater benefit to only eating vegetables, then God's wisdom, the wisdom of His commands, would be called into question. Also keep in mind that Daniel and his friends, they eat vegetables probably because they didn't have access to a kosher deli. Secondly, such a position, using this to argue for some type of diet, that position completely misses what's actually happening in our passage. Because it removes the supernatural undertones by pointing instead to a natural explanation. Well, they look better. Why? Because they weren't eating meat. Hogwash. You see, it wasn't their diet that caused their features to appear better and fatter in flesh. Instead, the whole idea of the passage is that it was God who honored their stand and blessed them accordingly. The final five verses of Daniel 1 wrap up the backstory of these four men. And in doing so, it really sets things up for where the rest of the book ends up heading. This is the backstory, the backdrop. Things are now wrapped up here beginning with verse 17, setting the stage for, for the rest of the book. We read, and for these four men, God gave them knowledge and skill, and all literature and wisdom, 
And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the day, so this is at the completion of these three years of training, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Imagine being one of these men standing in the throne room of the king of Babylon. We're told then the king interviewed them. He has a conversation. He interviews them. He tests them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, or wanted their counsel concerning, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Amazingly, while Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had been hand-selected from Judah to serve in the king's palace, mainly because of their intellectual giftings, in Babylon, these young men quickly rise to incredible prominence and favor with Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because God gave them knowledge, skill, and understanding in all matters of wisdom. In fact, the king interviews them, these four men, and he finds that they're better than all of the magicians, ten times better than everyone else in his realm. It's amazing what God does. One of the tragic realities of this first chapter, and I alluded to this a little earlier, is that again, of all the young men taken from Judah into Babylon, to serve King Nebuchadnezzar, it was only Daniel and his three amigos that took a stand. Only only Daniel and these three other men, these four guys, it was only four of all of them that refused the king's delicacies, that stood on the word of God. And as such, of the entire lot, only these men end up receiving the blessings of God. In this first chapter, we read that it was God. God gave them grace. God gave them knowledge. God gave them skill. One of the great misconceptions of grace is that you and I play no role at all. And ultimately, that's not true. It's been said, the only prerequisite of grace is that we receive it. But that does denote your inclusion. See, Daniel and his friends, they illustrate for us how we receive God's grace. Because these four men make a decision to confess their sin, to repent, to trust in God's word, to hold fast to God's promises, believing that God's grace was still available even in exile. Because these four young men were willing to place their futures completely into the hands of a sovereign God by refusing to defile themselves so that they might maintain their holy distinction with and purposeful uh, separation from Babylon. Because of that, receiving God's grace met them and yielded, as a result, amazing blessings. These things were set loose in their lives. God gave them grace because of the stand that they took. To this point, David Guzik, who's one of my favorite Bible commentators, he writes, 
quote, the seeds of their great success are evident in the very first chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends show us that inner conviction can overcome any outward pressure and that God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. God's grace is available. God's grace wants to yield amazing blessings. The question is, your part in, will you receive it? Concerning Daniel, this chapter closes, setting up the rest of his story in two simple ways. First, we're told that Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. As we're going to see, God will speak through the prophet Daniel in some awesome, supernatural ways. Like Joseph, God will give Daniel, he'll grant to him the ability to interpret dreams and visions. Now, the distinction between the two is that dreams seem to occur while one is asleep, while visions can be seen as revelations that take place while one is conscious. Additionally, we read, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel, he's taken into Babylon as a captive of King Nebuchadnezzar. Most astoundingly, we will see Babylon fall to the Medo-Persians, an empire. But Daniel will continue his service into the reign of King Cyrus. What this tells us is, is that Daniel, he outlives Babylon. And over the course of his 70 years of ministry, he has an influence and an impact in two different world powers. As we wrap up, Daniel 1. There is one more component to these things that we need to discuss. Because in a roundabout way, it really has a particular application for you and I. Back in verse 2, we read something interesting. We read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar carried into the land, notice, of Shinar, to the house of his God. Now for the student of Scripture, Daniel's reference here to the land of Shinar possesses a very deep and relevant significance. In the genealogy of Genesis chapter 10, and you might not have noticed this because you get to the genealogy of Genesis 10 and most of us skip right through it, but we read something fascinating. We read that Cush begot a son named Nimrod. And Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. First reference of Shinar. This word, this ancient word Shinar, it literally means the country of two rivers. We know these rivers to be the Euphrates and the Tigris. The very location that Daniel and his friends have been taken into exile in, Babylon. Concerning Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom, excuse me. As you then turn to Genesis 11, we're provided more details about it. We read that the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, let us build a city 
and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Nimrod, the son of Cush, was the grandson of Ham and great-grandson of Noah. His name is interesting. Nimrod's name literally means the rebel. Or in another translation, we will rebel. During this population explosion that was taking place a few hundred years after the flood, so we're four generations in, the Bible tells us that Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. The idea being articulated is that Nimrod grew in strength and power and influence that he developed a following. We're also told that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Since God had commanded mankind to eat meat after the flood, humans and animals, well, they had gone from being friends to foes. A paradigm had shifted. Pastor Sandy Adams writes to this point, Among men not accustomed to this new threat from the animal kingdom, Nimrod was an impressive person. He played on man's fears. In the wake of the new threats posed by a post-world flood, he was able to manipulate people into following him. People looked to Nimrod as a mighty hunter for protection. Nimrod was seen, was hailed as a savior. This statement that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord it's confusing, let's be real. The word before doesn't mean exactly what you think it does. It means in the face of. Like the idea isn't that he was a mighty hunter for the Lord, but that his activities were an offense before God. Like Nimrod used his hunting ability and the attention that this drew to himself to take people away from God. For our purposes, the Bible says that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. Nimrod, through force, coercion, will, was not only able to gain considerable power, but he was able to consolidate it. Like Nimrod was the first king, and Babel, the first kingdom mentioned in Scripture. Not only was his establishment of a centralized government and a capital city directly in opposition to God's command for Noah's sons and their descendants to spread out, to scatter, to multiply, to fill the earth. But there appears to be an even deeper form of rebellion behind Nimrod's establishment of Babel, of the city. The word Babel, it's an interesting word. It means to confuse by mixing. Again, in Genesis 11, we're given Nimrod's purpose for building the city. He says, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth, which had been God's intention. Babel was founded, not only in rebellion, stark rebellion to God's commands, but it was founded to celebrate the glory of man. Babel was man-centric, exchanging the worship of God for the might of man. 
of Nimrod and his city? Guzik observes, this was a statement of self against God. In Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, we read of Satan's appeal to Eve. He said to her, God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, God's holding out on you. You're not going to die if you eat the fruit. You'll be like God. He doesn't want you to be like Him. You see, the original sin always centered itself on the exaltation of man as being his own God. You don't need God. You can be God. As a result, Babel, while having, yes, a physical location in bygone eras, always represented this man-centric exaltation of self, this religious structure that stood in opposition to God. Babylon, which would come years later, it was equally evil because it substituted the worship of the Creator for the worship of creation. What began in the Garden of Eden, what had become codified through Nimrod's formation of Babel, in theological terms, it's referred to as the spirit of Babylon. The idea itself it ultimately kind of weaves its way, not just in Genesis, but all the way to the book of Revelation. All throughout Scripture, there's this spirit, this contrary spirit to God known as Babylon. Babel. For example, in the end of days, when Jesus comes to destroy this counterfeit, to establish His kingdom, His reign, His rule, we'll read in Revelation. They'll declare Babylon the great, the mother of all harlots, and of the abominations of the earth, has fallen. That great city. Because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Drinking of the wine. See why Daniel and his three amigos refused. Though God would put an end to Nimrod's rebellion, God would come down and stop their building of this great city. He would confuse their languages, forcing them to scatter. But since her inception, Babel has always existed as this system whereby man seeks to create a God of his own making into his own image and likeness. It's not an accident. That of all the things God could have done in His master plan, of all the nations he could, have, he could have used, God allows Babel, Babylon, to rise once again and be used as His instrument of judgment. It's as though God is dealing with His people who are rebellious, who are wicked, who are supplanting His place. And he says, oh, this is what you want? You want to rebel against me? Here you go. The spirit of Babylon rises again. You know, this will not be the last time the spirit of Babylon will be used to judge the Hebrew people. Friend, while the ancient city of Babylon exists today as ruins under the Iraqi sands, about 50 miles south of um, Baghdad, as Daniel and his friends Please understand, you and I 
are presently living in a Babylon of sorts. The spirit of Babylon that exalts man into a place reserved only for God. It's very much alive and well in our world today. Babylon has and will always oppose God. It will always oppose God's people. Babylon persecutes the righteous and exalts the wicked. The spirit of Babylon is presently propagating a culture, building a society, a world that rejects a need for the divine. Because this is the world that we live in. Because this is the world that you and I have to navigate through. Daniel's example for us is incredibly relevant. It's simply a truth that we all occupy space in this godless system. A world that's not our home. You and I, man, we're citizens of God. Citizens of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. You and I, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But we are also living in Babylon. Battling not against flesh and blood, but against spirits, principalities, powers, Babylon. No doubt, no question. There is a component to our present reality whereby we all have to serve a Nebuchadnezzar of sorts. And yet, please, my friend, don't ever forget you and I, while we might have to serve a Nebuchadnezzar, we're servants of God, and Babylon is not our home. We are pilgrims, sojourners, passing through. You see, under such conditions, Daniel and his friends were able to recognize the critical, crucial importance of remaining distinct and separate they could live in Babylon and prove productive, but they refused. They took a stand. They wouldn't allow themselves to become Babylonian, nor would they allow themselves to become dependent or one with a pagan king. Distinction and separation. As we see with Daniel, when it comes to the decisions that, that are under your control, it's my prayer that you purpose in your heart not to allow who you are to be defined by this place you live or allow yourself to be defiled through compromise. There is a great appeal to Babylon, but never forget, she's a whore. These men, Daniel, his three amigos. They proved to be useful for the Lord. They were influencers. Why? Because they retained a proper distinction with and separation from Babylon. They were living in Babylon, but they never allowed themselves to become Babylonian. They were children of the Most High. And they lived as such. Like Daniel, I exhort you, friend, place your trust in God's Word. Like Daniel, place your faith in His promises. 
And in turn, may you act boldly. Taking a stand. Purposing in your heart. Having complete confidence that God's grace is both available and accessible. To grant even those in exile incredible purpose. Father, Lord, we thank You.